0: All right, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. We'll be covering 15 and 16 this morning. Uh, But I want to tell you a little story as I begin. Back in 1981, I was still dreaming of becoming a Texas Aggie. I wasn't there yet. 1981, I was at home watching a football game, an Aggie football game, with my friend. And this is back when A&M was still in the Southwest Conference, and A&M was playing uh, SMU. And I remember at one point in the game, SMU scored a touchdown— And the SMU cheerleaders rushed onto the field, and they threw themselves on the ground, and they spelled out SMU. And, you know, we just, we jumped up, we just went crazy, and you could hear the student body going crazy, like they're desecrating Kyle Field with the symbol of SMU, and everybody's just going absolutely nuts. And then a crazy thing happened. One of the officers of the day ran onto the field, and he drew his sword and began to poke his sword at the SMU cheerleaders. I don't know, anybody in here remember that when that happened? Okay, yeah, a few of you were around. It was just, it was nuts. And all of a sudden, like, everything got really quiet. Like, okay, maybe that's a little bit of an overreaction, right? I mean, maybe a, maybe a little bit of anger, but holy cow, man, the guy pulled his sword, right? He's, he's stabbing at the SMU cheerleaders. And, you know, I thought, okay, Maybe, maybe my anger, too, was a, a little bit uh, of an overreaction, right? I mean, I may get stabbed right now, but it is just a game, all right? Is anger ever appropriate, right? Uncontrolled anger, we would all say, yeah, I mean, uncontrolled anger, that's a sin, but is, but is anger ever an appropriate response, is anger, in fact, sometimes the appropriate response? To not be angry would be inappropriate. Uh, you know, God gets angry in the Bible. And we like to talk a lot about God's, God's mercy and God's grace and God's kindness and God's compassion. But then uh, talking about, about God's anger can make us a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, when my kids were little, we had a, a Bible. It's called the Rhyming Bible and the story of Jonah didn't mention really anything much about God's anger against the Ninevite sin it was really just a story about a big fish and kind of missed the point that God was God was angry revelation 15 and 16 god is angry and he is he's venting his anger in justice toward the earth and all of heaven cheers all of heaven cheers, and all of heaven rejoices. They're celebrating because God's anger is appropriate. God's anger is the right reaction. Because realize, uh, in any and every circumstance, God feels the right way, and God thinks the right way, and God acts the right way. And so when God sees injustice, it is necessary, it's required, it's a reflection of who he is, that he, he, he hates sin that much. He must respond in anger. He can't do anything but respond in anger, and his anger is, in fact, righteous. But we really need to wrestle with that a little bit. The reason we need to wrestle with that is because uh, for us to to worship God in in an appropriate way, Jesus said, you need to worship in spirit and in truth. Meaning we have to worship God as he actually is, not as we would like him to be or suppose him to be or maybe remake him in our own image and keep parts that we like and parts that make us a bit uncomfortable. We've got to deal with God as he actually is and His hatred of sin and his love of righteousness and justice is an integral part of his character. And so we're gonna look at that this morning in 15 and 16 to put us back in in our setting. Remember, we're in the tribulation period and we're actually in the second half Of the tribulation period. Last week we saw the the rise of the kingdom of the dragon, the kingdom of Satan and his antichrist, his substitute Christ and the false prophet. And even as that kingdom is rising the gospel is being preached and there are people who turn to Jesus Christ and they believe that he is the Messiah. And because they choose not to align themselves with Satan in his kingdom but instead align themselves with Jesus Christ they suffer And in these chapters, we see Jesus uh, intervening on their behalf and executing justice on the earth. So I want you to begin reading with me chapter 15, and let's read in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's justice first vindicates his people. Notice what John says in verse 1. He says, uh, in these plagues... The wrath of God is finished. These seven plagues represent the the seven bowls. They are the culmination of God's judgment. Remember, as we begin the tribulation period, we said there's a series of judgments. You have seals, and then trumpets, and then bowls. Seven seals, and the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. And what John is saying is we have entered into this final phase, the bowl judgments. The wrath of God is about to be finished. And he looks again, and he sees a sea of glass. And this time, the sea of glass is mixed with fire. The sea of glass represented many peoples earlier in the book of Revelation, and now it's mixed with fire, meaning God's judgment is coming. But who are the people who are standing on the sea of glass? People standing on the sea of glass, these, these are people who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the first time during the tribulation period. They see God's judgments coming upon the, the earth and they see God's righteousness and they turn and they believe in Jesus that they can be rescued from the wrath of God through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. They put their faith in Jesus and, and they choose not to receive the mark of the beast. And because they do not receive the mark of the beast, they are persecuted. And they cannot buy food and they cannot pay their mortgage and they cannot run their business. And uh, many of them starve and others of them are persecuted so that they lose their property. They lose even their lives. And now here they are before the throne of God and they've made all of these sacrifices. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it that they chose to stay loyal to the Lamb of God and lost their lives? We're told, in fact, that they are proclaimed to be victorious Because they died. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, throughout all of Scripture, God calls His people to do really crazy things. But God calls us to do things that just don't make sense because uh, God's accounting of things, what God values, is completely opposite of what the world values. Let me give you just a few illustrations. Uh, Jesus said, Do you want to be great? Then be a servant. Do you want to save your life? Give your life away. Do you want to become free? Become a slave. Do you want to be blessed? Be extravagantly generous to other people. Do you want to be wise? Become a fool. Do you want to be first? Put yourself last. And then he says, trust me. Do you want to be victorious? Then align yourself with the lamb and lose your freedom, lose your property, lose your life and you will be victorious. Trust me that in the end, the way that I value life is the right way. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that God didn't vindicate his people. That God didn't prove that those who choose to follow Jesus had chosen correctly. Those who choose to give their lives away would actually gain their lives. I want you to hold your place here in Revelation and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73 and verse 3. In this psalm, Asaph, the psalmist was wrestling with the righteousness of God, because it didn't seem like God was going to intervene. He looked around him, and all that he saw was the success of people who rejected God. Verse 3, he said, I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. And in those days, that was a really good thing, okay? It meant that you were wealthy. You didn't have to work, They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their hearts runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. God, are they going to be held accountable? And then Asaph said, then I entered into the the, the temple of God, the courtroom of God, and I saw the world from God's perspective. And I realize that God does hate sin. God is angry at sin, and God will act out of that anger, and he will will create justice. He will vindicate his people for choosing to live foolishly according to his wisdom. I want you to turn to Psalm 37 with me now. Psalm 37, let's read in verse 1. This is a Psalm of David, and he wrote, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will quickly wither like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment. As the noonday. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Verse 35. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in native soil. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. God will set all things right. And every sacrifice you make to follow Jesus Christ, in the end, God says, I will reward it. That's why they sing a song back in Revelation. They sing the song of Moses. Let's turn back there again. It's called the song of Moses And the song of the Lamb. I don't think it's two different songs. I think it's one song. It's a song of deliverance, and it's a song of vindication. Chapter 15, verse 3. They sang the song of Moses and the bondservant of God. And the song of the Lamb sang, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy." For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed, and you will set all things right. So, first, God's justice vindicates his people. Second, God's justice reflects his character. God's justice reflects his character. Verse 5, let's read together. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden, golden sashes. The one of, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." In the song they sing, God, you are righteous, you are true, you alone are holy, you are set apart, you are almighty, you live forever and ever. All of your ways are right, all of your ways are in fact true. Jump ahead to chapter 16, verse 5. It says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. You are righteous because you judged. You would not be righteous if you did not judge. It would not be appropriate for you not to be angry towards sin because sin is a violation of your character. And sin is theft from God. Chapter 15, verse 8, let's read it again. It says, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. That phrase, the glory of God, it's, it's biblically, it's like shorthand to talk about all of God's attributes. When you say the glory of God, you're saying, this is God's personality. This is who God is. Glory in Hebrew literally means to be, to be weighty. Something is heavy. When you glorify God, you're making his name heavy. You're giving it proper weight. When you speak of the glory of God, you're speaking of his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his compassion, but also his righteousness and his justice and his holiness and the fact that God is completely other and different. And when God's glory is revealed on earth and when, when God's glory is revealed in heaven, what happens is there's room for no one else. Right, his glory basically, it consumes all of the space because he's infinite in his perfections. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle This is what he said. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord is, theologically, it's the sum total of his attributes, but it is also a reflection and radiation of his beauty. So when the glory of God appears, it's bright, it's brilliant, it's overwhelming. When Moses was able to get just a little bit close to the glory of, of God, it changed him physiologically. It made him glow. And there was room for nothing else. When Solomon dedicated the temple, a similar thing happened. It said, it happened when the priests came from the holy place. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and the priest had to leave. And in Isaiah chapter six, when God's glory shows up, the angels have to leave. There's room for no one else because no one is like God. No one is comparable to God. And sin is taking away from the glory of God. And as my kids were growing up and they hit teenage years and they're starting to flex on me a little bit, there were moments in our conversations where I'd have to say, you need to understand something. You and I are not equals. Now, my parenting book will be coming out later this year, autographed copies for sale. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if it was my best parenting moment, but you know, I, I flexed back. I'm like, you need to understand something. We're not equals here. I own the house. I own the car, I pay the bills, food's in the fridge because of me. It's me, this is me, this is my domain, right? We're not equals. And sometimes we have these moments in Scripture where God says, hey, you know what, we're not equals. As high as the heavens are above the earth, immeasurably higher, God is in all of his perfections. And so anything that distracts or denigrates God's character must be removed. There's no room for it. Now I have a friend named uh, Michael. And Michael uh, was a professional golfer. When I met him, he was still a professional golfer. We met at, um, at CrossFit. We were working out together. And uh, I would say that I am a, like, thoroughly average high school athlete level. Like, that's kind of who I am. You know, I'm not, that doesn't make me feel good or bad. It's just, this, you know, that's who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably athletic, but I've been around some actual professional athletes. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's next level. That's, you know, that's just absolutely amazing. And, you know, Michael, just watching Michael move, was it was just impressive what he could do with his, with his body. It seemed like he could do anything. He could learn anything. And so, you know, he's also kind of a natural coach and he would give me tips here and there. And then one day I got to go out to the driving range with Michael and hit golf balls. And that was awesome. And so I'm watching him hit and I said, hey, would you coach me a little bit? Would you watch my swing? Would you coach me, right? So I had my driver out and I, I hit a couple drives and he's watching and he, he goes, okay, this is what you need to do. He said, Brian, you need to be more violent. He said, you're just not violent enough. You need to be violent when you come. He said, you need, to, you need to explode out of the bottom. You need to be violent when you swing. And I go, I'm being violent, man. And he goes, you're not. You're not nearly violent enough. And so I go, okay. I, so I, I swung again, you know, and, and I, I go, man, that, was a, that one was really violent, right? And he goes, no, you're not violent enough. You need to be just violent and aggressive. You need to explode all the way out of the ground. So I did again, and, and I go, I'm doing it, man. I look just like you. he said, hold on a second, give me your phone. I hit another drive and he shot some video and I looked at the video and it was like. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm like anti-violence. I'm not violent at all. There's no violence in my swing whatsoever at all. And you know, I thought this is, this is gonna be a great illustration one day. And today's that day. I finally figured out, okay. Um, having, having a professional coach, Look at you and coach you. It's kind of like uh, the Word of God. You look at it and you see reality. Okay, this is actually who God is in all of His perfections, and this is who we are in light of the perfections of God. And mankind, for all of human history, has been stealing from the glory and honor that is due the Lord. And so he must, in fact, express his anger and hatred towards sin and set things right because his justice is a it's a reflection of the perfections of his character and his attributes. Now, third, God's justice reveals his omniscience. Now we're gonna read the first section of chapter 16, and I want you to hang with me. We're gonna read eleven verses, and this is intense. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, God the Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him the glory that he deserves. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So, when I was in fourth grade, I got caught. I got caught passing a note in class, and as a result, I was taken out into the hallway, and I had to sit in the hallway for the rest of the day and do my homework out in the hallway by myself on the hard floor. Now, the only problem with this was I wasn't actually the one passing the note. I, I, I was I was punished for something that wasn't my fault. I mean, it was an in, incredible fourth grade injustice, right? And uh, I was the one suffering for it because my teacher, Mrs. Jen, Jenkins, she turned around and she thought she saw me passing a note, but I wasn't really passing a note. But the fact is, she was doing the best that she could. We were we were a rebellious class. I mean, we were that fourth grade Mrs. Jenkins class, man. We we just. We just ran this lady around like crazy and so she couldn't see everything that we were doing wrong because it was something all the time and so she missed this one because she was not omniscient or she couldn't see all things but you know what god is there is there's nothing in fact that uh, god misses read with me again verses five and six says i heard the angel of the water saying righteous are you who are and who were a holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and consequently you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They have chosen to take the mark of the beast, align themselves with Satan. They've rejected God. They've persecuted God's people. They put God's people to death. And as a result, you're giving them the appropriate consequence. God never gives more than what is appropriate. His, his, his anger is not uncontrolled. It is measured and it is appropriate and it is right for him to express it. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, it says this, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing that's hidden from God. God sees not only our actions, but he knows our attitudes and our thoughts and the things that we keep hidden from others, even the things that we keep hidden from ourselves. God knows, God sees all things. So when God judges, God's judgment is always right, it's always true, it's always appropriate. And it would, in fact, be inappropriate for him not to judge because he sees and he knows. I want you to hold your place in Revelation and turn with me to Romans chapter one and verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, no one will be able to stand before God and say, I have an excuse. God will say, no, no, you don't because I revealed myself to you in creation and in your conscience. In creation, you see my strength, you see my power, you see my intelligence, you see my wisdom, you see my morality, you see my right to judge my creation. I'm sovereign over all and your conscience convicts you of right and wrong, you know. Look at chapter two, verse 14. Paul writes, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. God's judgment will always be appropriate. It will always be true. It will always be right because he knows all things. We don't know all things. We don't see all things, but God does. Then fourth, God's justice prepares creation for his kingdom. Revelation chapter 16. Let's read in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together For the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or the hill of Megiddo. Is the gathering point, the sixth bowl, is the gathering of the nations for this final battle. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is just the gathering point. The battle will actually be against Jerusalem, and we'll talk about that uh, in two weeks. The seventh angel, the seventh bowl, verse 17. He poured out his bowl on the, the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, "It is done." And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came up to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So the sixth bowl prepares the nations for that final battle against God. Talk about that in two weeks. The seventh bowl is the destruction of Babylon. We'll talk about that next week. The point of those last two bowls is that all evil is about to be completely removed from the earth so that God can establish his kingdom. Because God's kingdom cannot exist with any evil at all. Remember, the point of the book of Revelation is it's telling us the story. What's going to happen in the future? Specifically, how is God going to reclaim all of creation for his kingdom, for his rule and reign? God made the heavens and the earth so that we could inhabit it, so that we could live in relationship with him, in relationship with one another, so that we could fill the earth and subdue it and spread his glory everywhere. Sin disrupted that plan, but God's plan hasn't changed. And the book of Revelation tells us, how, what's God's strategy? How is he going to do it? Well, ultimately, for God to restore all things under his rule and reign, he's got to remove all evil. He can't re- leave any evil at all in his kingdom, or it wouldn't be a place that you would want to live. Let me illustrate. Imagine that you go to the doctor and you discover that you have cancer. And for some of you, this hits home. Imagine there's a disease in your body that has to be removed. So you go in for surgery. You go in for cancer surgery. And at the end of your surgery, the doctor comes in to the recovery room and he shakes you, wakes you up and goes, hey, you know what? You did great. You did really, really good. Um, I need to tell you something though. I only took part of the cancer out because I got a little bit tired during surgery and my blood sugar dropped. I needed to go get something to eat and also I've got a golf game later so I took some of it out. I took most of it out really but I left a bit of it in there and then I put, sewed you back up and put you together. <laughs> it's super malpractice. You no, know, You need to go out back in and take it all out because if you leave any of it in, It will metastasize. It will grow because cancer is like sin. It grows everywhere. And so God can't leave any sin at all before he establishes his kingdom upon earth. And we wouldn't want to live in that place where a little bit is left in one corner. Instead, as we'll look at in chapters 20, 21, and 22, all evil is removed and all of creation is restored. And there won't even be the possibility for us to experience temptation, let alone sin. And every tear will be wiped and every sorrow removed. And that's what we were designed for. And that's what God recreates for all of eternity. Now, what that tells us is God's justice is good. God's justice is is necessary. It's a reflection of his character, but it's also necessary for the execution of his plan to establish his righteous kingdom on earth, a kingdom that was designed for us to live as we were designed to live. And so that's why all of heaven rejoices and celebrates when God begins to execute his justice on the earth and remove sin. Now, a couple thoughts for application. Uh, Actually, we're, we're gonna close this morning with uh, communion. So if you didn't get a communion cup on the way in, if you would raise your hand. And as we're getting served and everybody's getting prepared, um, I want to uh, just share a couple verses with you. But first a thought. Uh, I find in myself that um, I really, there, I, don't, I don't reject God's justice. In fact, I want to see God's justice. I want God's justice for other people, but I want God's mercy for me. Right? And so it's not that I reject Uh, god's justice per se it's that a lot of times i i don't like his timing i want it to happen more quickly or i don't like his focus who it's being executed on but i fully embrace that god is patient and merciful toward me but i want his justice toward others and i'm impatient sometimes when there's an injustice against me i'm like god could you hurry up the process so i want to remind you of a verse that we talked about when we began our study of the book of revelation Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. The context in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 is that people are looking around and they're they're saying, you know, it seems like everything's continuing just as it is, and the unrighteous are prospering, the wicked people are prospering, and righteous people are struggling and suffering. I don't know. Is God actually ever going to establish his kingdom on earth earth? Is he ever going to actually remake all things? It seems like he's slow about his promise. And Peter says, You don't you just don't get it. One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day with an eternal God. God is not like us. But the other thing that you've got to remember is he's not slow. He's intentionally waiting. And you see injustice in the world and you want it fixed right away, but God is holding back his anger and his wrath. It will come. He, if, he was, if he didn't ever judge sin, he wouldn't be God. But he's holding back so that more people can come to repentance. And so he's saying to us, church, in this intervening time, while we are waiting and longing for God's justice to return, let's also share God's deliverance and rescue from his wrath through Jesus Christ, right? Let, let's, let's get on the stick. And let's, let's understand that God also has been patient with us in giving us time to repent. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That verse right there is a whole sermon series, so I got to take just a minute and unpack that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What did we say the glory of God is? It's, it's all of who God is. It's the sum total of God's attributes and God's beauty. That's the standard. You want a relationship with God? You have to measure the standard. We fall short. We miss the mark. Every single person who's ever lived, none of us measures up. So we need God to give us a relationship with him as a free gift. That's what he does. Being justified or declared righteous as a free gift by his grace, that is, his undeserved favor, Through the redemption which is in christ jesus that is god declares us righteous as a gift when we simply believe so i want to encourage you this morning if you have never believed in jesus christ for the first time that this morning would be that moment your sin creates a separation between you and god but god has fixed that he's created a solution through jesus christ talks about that in the next phrase it says whom god displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath God is absolutely holy so he has to be angry towards sin he has to be wrathful towards sin but what he's done is he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus Christ Jesus Christ has paid the debt of our sin and consequently we are safe from the wrath of God if we are in Jesus Christ and all that you have to do to be in Jesus Christ is to say yes God thank you pouring out your righteous anger against sin onto Jesus Christ so that I can be safe in him. Now, I think the appropriate response for us then is first believe. If you've never believed this morning, take, take this moment and say, God, I get it. I know that there are things that are, that are broken in my life where, where I've, I've lived independently from you and tried to find my own way. I believe, I believe Jesus has paid that debt. Second, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's approach the world around us. I know that we long for justice, but can we also approach it with a little bit of humility? Because we're all equally under the sentence and, and condemnation of death because of our sin. So so often we look about these people around us and they're just such an inconvenience and a frustration, but these are the people for whom Christ died. And we all come to the foot of the cross equally broken, equally in need of God's grace. So I, I'd love for us to walk out of here with a little bit more humility and a lot more compassion. Of course, they behave like sinful, broken people because they are sinful, broken people. And they are in need of God's grace. And we are the ones who can reflect it while God is waiting, patiently waiting. And at the right time, He will display His justice. Now, as we celebrate communion, it's our opportunity to also be grateful. Uh, the other word for communion that's frequently used is Eucharist. It's a Greek word. It means to give thanks. It's Thanksgiving. And so I'd like for us to take a few moments, quiet, quietly, silently before the Lord, if you would bow your heads and just give God thanks that he has revealed his son Jesus Christ to you. So we'll wait until every, make sure everybody is served and then we'll take the elements together. But let's just take a few moments quietly before the Lord and give him thanks that He has revealed his son Jesus who takes away the debt of our sin. night of Jesus' betrayal, uh, one of his close companions, uh, Judas, who had lived with him for three years, uh, betrayed him and was going to deliver him over to the authorities for him to be crucified. Uh, But before that betrayal, Jesus, as he was sharing that final meal with his, his friends, he said, when you have a meal, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember that uh, God's wrath against your sin has been poured out on me. Because it was poured out on me, it's, 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 it's gonna break my body. I'm going to suffer. So when you have a meal, I want you to break bread because that's gonna remind you of the consequence of sin and, and the, the suffering that I was willing to go through because I love you and I want you restored to relationship with my Father. So every time you break the bread, Remember my body broken for you. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup and he said, uh, as you're finishing the meal, you'll take a final cup and you'll drink it together. And as you drink that cup, I want you to understand that I suffered all the way to the point of death because it was the, the full surrender of my life that gives life to you. And I was willing to do it. I was willing to go all the way and give you my life. So every time you drink the cup, I want you to remember my sacrifice. Let's take the cup together. Father, we we praise you and we thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. We thank you and praise you that no unrighteousness dwells with you. We thank you that you always act according to truth and justice. We thank you, Father, that you do not turn a blind eye to sin, but that causes you to be angry. We thank you that you've poured out your anger against sin on your son, Jesus Christ, and all who turn to him are protected, they're safe. We thank you that you've revealed your son, Jesus Christ, to us so that we can know that we have eternal life. Father, we thank you that you've given us opportunity to have friends and family and neighbors and coworkers that we can love and serve and we can share the truth of Jesus Christ with. I pray, Father, that we would see them with eyes of compassion and patience. If you can be patient, we can be patient. And I pray, Father, that even this week, you give us moments, opportunities, when we can get to the gospel and invite them into a relationship through Jesus Christ with the creator of the universe. It's in his name we give thanks.